Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome to Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. And just yesterday, as we're sitting here in the studio, the Supreme Court announced its blockbuster ruling in the religious liberty case of the year, Trinity Lutheran Church case. And here to talk about it is Matthew Hawkins, a policy analyst with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Matt, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you for the invitation, Alan. Happy to be here. So first of all, introduce our listeners, some of whom may not be familiar with the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. What uh, what exactly is this organization? Certainly. Thanks, Alan. Um, the ERLC is the Moral, Ethics, and Public Policy entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant organization of Christian churches. And the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest organization of Protestant churches in the United States with about 46,000 churches and about 15 million members. The ERLC basically serves those churches in two ways. Number one, we try to provide resources to equip pastors in local churches to deal with the moral, ethical, and public policy issues of our time. Then in the space of government and the public square, we try to bring those opinions to bear from Southern Baptists uh, to the three branches of the federal government and, and public square. Uh, so we speak on behalf of issues of consensus within the Southern Baptist Convention, including religious liberty. So in, in this Trinity Lutheran case, did you guys join or file a friend of the court brief? We did file a friend of the court brief, which is a common thing we do. We engage at the legislative branch, and we engage at the executive branch, and at the amicus brief we use uh, to engage the court system. We do that fairly commonly. Uh, we're not attorneys. We're not set up to be a law firm by trade, but we do join those amicus briefs from time to time. And we joined one in this on behalf of Trinity Lutheran because we agreed um, what the justices ultimately agreed. Now, you know, sitting here today, everybody, you know, our listening audience has been bombarded with media about the case, but by the time the show airs, they may well have forgotten uh, <laughs> everything that they once knew about it. Right. So why don't you just set the stage of, of what happened, and then we can talk about the significance of it. Sure. In some sense, it can be complicated, but in, in a lot of sense, in the basic sense, it's very simple. The state of Missouri had a program in which they provided recycled tires uh, to be as a grant uh, to schools who wanted to put this recycled tire substance as a substrate on their playgrounds, basically. So uh, munchkins, um, like my one-year-old daughter, uh, when they're, if they were go to preschool or something like that, they don't skin their knees or break bones when they you know, fall off the swings or whatever, right? That's what this is. Well, was it providing the actual tires or was it providing money to buy the tires? I think it was providing a grant to make that happen. Right. Um, but it's interesting to note that the grant recipients had to also bring to the table, I think, a certain amount of funds themselves uh, to make the thing happen. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as if it was a completely government-provided thing, but it was certainly a grant that helped get them there. Um, they offered this program uh, to all comers, basically, and then graded all the applicants against a, a, a set of objective criteria. I think there were about 44-ish applicants, and I think the state was able to grant um, the program to about 15 participants. Out of that ranking, Trinity Lutheran School 
ranked about fourth. But then Missouri turned around and said, you can't participate because you are a church. That presents a problem on religious liberty grounds, and the Supreme Court ruled seven to two uh, that Missouri was wrong in this instance. Now, those who favored excluding the church, let's put it that way, sure, they see this case as an Establishment Clause case. Correct. As a case of the separation of church and state. Right. But the court looked at it as a free exercise case. How do you see you know, this kind of shift right. from establishment or free exercise? Well, one way to look at this case is, is both. Um, one way I had heard it described to me uh, was that it's kind of about the play in the joints between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, so as a Baptist, we agree with the separation of church and state, not so much for progressive secularists who think it's to protect the state. We believe in separation of church and state for the sake of the church and for the sake of the gospel witness, um, and that getting the institutions of the state and the church combined tends up to be really bad uh, for the church in the long run. Now, that said, the funding from government to a Christian school or any kind of religious school uh, has at first glance the appearance of a breach of the Establishment Clause. That is, government is funding and supporting a particular religious sect. Um, on the flip side, though, you're right, the court appeared to view this as an exercise statement. Uh, from the school's perspective, if the state is offering a grant program to all comers and from objective criteria, you can't single out an organization from participation simply because of their religious nature. Uh, we agreed with that. Um, the state can offer resources to all citizens or it cannot. But if it does decide to offer those resources to those citizens, then they have to do it freely uh, and not restrict it based on religious grounds. So, you know, I'm wondering about the implications of this. Yeah. Uh, first of all, was it narrow? I mean, this is the first, to my knowledge, this is the first time the court has approved uh, money in the form of a, you know, a grant directly going to a church. Yeah. Of course, there have been a lot of what we call parochiate cases with various forms of assistance to church schools. Right. But this is the first one where some money is going directly to a church. And I'm wondering if the court drew some boundaries around that. Yes. In our reading of the court's opinion, it's a very narrow decision. There is even a footnote uh, that basically says we haven't ruled out We've not ruled on whether all government funding going to a, a church resource is uh, is appropriate or not, but in the purpose of substrate for playgrounds, this is the case. So I think it's fair to say it's a narrow ruling, um, but it has implications across a number of states who have similar laws on the books. So these laws are known as Blaine Amendments. Correct. The court essentially applied an equality type of analysis, a non-discrimination analysis, and said uh, you can't just exclude the church because it's a church Correct. if it's otherwise qualified. But I wonder how far that principle could carry. In some of the oral arguments, a lot of the justices were concerned that given the nature of a playground surface, right? There's no doctrinal value or content in that product. 
um, there was concern um, about how it might relate to other safety provisions and grants, uh, wherein uh, religious institutions uh, do partake in government resources for, say, safety and natural disasters. Uh, so I think there was some concern about if they limit it here, uh, where else that might, limitation might go. Um, well, I guess one of the concerns that, that I've had in this case yeah. is if the church is going to get a grant from the government, the government's going to have to come in and audit the church books and make sure the money's used for the purpose that it was given. Yeah. I mean, what happens if, you know, after obtaining the grant, uh, lo and behold, uh, some company that has these, you know, rubber tires steps up to the plate and says, hey, we're just going to go ahead and donate all of these tires to you. Yeah. And then the church has this money and they don't spend it on the tires. They're going to use it for some other purpose. That's a good question. My understanding of the grant program is that uh, these, this grant could only be used uh, for that purpose. Right. That's, uh, so it was a grant that facilitated this particular program, but it wasn't a, a grant of money that could be used elsewhere. Well, yes, that is absolutely the restriction built into the grant program. And I, my point is simply that all grant programs have to be policed in some way to make sure that the funds are used right. for the proper purposes. And, you know, to me, when you start to give money directly to churches, it raises questions of, of entanglement, although maybe <laughs> the court isn't that concerned anymore about uh, the entanglement between church and state. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, we have historically stood on, we say we've stood on Baptist shoulders yeah. in our coming to our views on the separation of church and state. And so this is a very challenging case in some ways in terms of the precedent that it sets. It is a challenging case, and I think uh, one way to look at it, I appreciate you highlighting Baptist history there, um, which is why the ERLC's position is unique on this thing, uh, because on the one hand, we say to our churches, just like you explained, uh, be cautious when you touch government funds, right? right? There's strings attached. Um, my former boss used to say, with government shekels come government shackles. Ah, okay. the strings right? that strangle, yes. Right, right. And so we're always talking to our pastors and, and our ministers and, and people who uh, provide services um, that are connected to the church work and saying, look, this is a really bad idea. Generally speaking, don't take government funds to accomplish the mission of the gospel, while at the same time pivoting to the government and saying, if government, you are truly religiously neutral, if you offer programs and grants to all comers based on objective criteria of people who are actually providing services to also all comers in their community, then you can't discriminate uh, explicitly because the institution is religious in nature. Well, and I think that was the premise behind uh, the so-called faith-based initiatives. Right. I was at, uh, you know, a dog and pony show that the Bush administration put on. Sure. Oh, 10, 15 years ago yeah. in San Diego. And the, the question uh, was put directly, can churches apply for grants for, you know, inner city programs and what have you? Right. And I think that was one of the primary purposes of the program was, uh, you know, from my perception, the Republicans were trying to build uh, political support within communities that historically voted Democrat, right. uh, inner city uh, ethnic churches, you know, by by providing these kinds of grants to them. Uh -huh. So the, the politics of this gets, uh, you know, confusing at best.
It does. I can't speak to the politics of the of the Bush administration, but I do remember the early days of the faith-based initiatives, and we were having much the same conversations uh, in those early days that we are now. Um, I would say this, as an individual who recognizes that um, America is a religiously diverse nation, um, maybe more so than any other nation in the world, um, and yet we have a religiously neutral government, I think uh, those of us who um, cling to the uh, separation of church and state uh, quite rightly, sometimes we think those uh, spheres of church and state are completely detached and never touched. Right. Um, like circles that have no overlap, but in fact, there's lots of overlap. Exactly. In fact, there is lots of overlap, but we have to be really precise and really thoughtful about how we negotiate that overlap, right? Um, for example, on another issue, we recognize as Christians that adoption has theological uh, underpinnings. Um, it's within the context of our theological understanding of salvation. At the same time, we recognize the state has authority to protect its citizens, and that includes children who are without their parents or who have lost their parents. So that sphere of adoption and foster care, those are places where we as Christians recognize the church has responsibilities and some authority in that space, but the state also does have some responsibility and authority in that space, and we have to negotiate how that works. Um, and so it's really difficult to find a one-size-fits-all for separation of church and state, therefore XYZ, for these big issues. Uh, does that help? It does. And, you know, these are complex issues, which is why we're never going to run out of good material here for Freedom's Ring. That's true. Uh, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Matt Hawkins, a policy analyst with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. We've been talking about the Trinity Lutheran Church case handed down by the Supreme Court. Matt, it's a delight to get better acquainted with you and to be able to have this conversation about this case. And of course, we're all going to stay tuned and see what comes next. Thanks for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Likewise, Alan. Thanks much for having me. All right. Blessings to you, my friend. As we close, remember, folks, at Church State Council, we provide legal services for those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.com. Org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.